Mike O'Connor is uh, going to share his story from the seats this morning. Mike's a good friend of mine. He and I have been friends for the last three or four years. We kind of really got to know each other through uh, men's fraternity uh, about three or four years ago. He's been helping lead that uh, as well as other things uh, here at Orchard Hill Church. And um, Powerful, powerful story of God at work. You got that in order? Keep talking. A little uh, looks like you've got to get, uh, get those pages. I messed it all up for you just to you see did. how good you could be at this. So, You're helpful. Uh, but we're excited about Mike. Another word about people who are sharing their stories. You know, we don't invite people to share their stories because they have it all figured out or because they know so much more about the Bible than the rest of us or anything like that. But it kind of grows out of relationship and uh, how we know. We just hear stories that have encouraged us, that have been powerful and impactful to us. And so we've invited them to be able to share some stories with you, hoping that it will encourage you as well. And um, and Mike is uh, Mike has done that for us, and I think you guys will be encouraged as well. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready now. Okay. If I go from red to purple, you'll be ready for me. I will right? come get you. So all right. All right. Good morning. I hope you're all well. The original title of this story was uh, "I Should Have, I Am." That's what I had when um, I gave it to the journey class. But as I get ready for this presentation, I got to thinking about my life and about this story, and I changed it to the third time's the charm. Some of you that know me might already get a sense for what that's about, but hopefully it'll be clear uh, by the time we're done. So, we'll start. I was sitting at at a stop sign at the top of an exit ramp off of 494 North in Plymouth, Minnesota. It was the fall of 1994, and I was 28 years old. I was alone. It was well after midnight, and I was drunk. I was sitting at that stop sign, too full of adrenaline to move after going 130 miles an hour down the interstate in a Z28 Camaro I'd bought new a few months earlier. That was a cool car, believe it or not, in 1994. (laughs) Trust me on that, it was. The car was a gift to myself, some kind of moving on present, I guess. After having divorced that spring from my first wife, the marriage had lasted less than three years, and I'd made a decision just that week to move from Minneapolis to Milwaukee and to leave the last six years behind. I told myself a new life waited for me in Milwaukee. I told myself I was taking control of my life and that I was making a fresh start. The truth was I was scared to death and I didn't know what to do. The truth was I was in a bad spot. I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm convinced that God saved my life that night and he saved it for a reason. The next week I got rid of the Camaro, which was smart. It was either that or wind up dead or in jail. But I needed to do a lot more. I should have used that summer to think. Instead, I put 14,000 miles on that car in four months. That's a true story, by the way. I drank myself silly and I chased every girl that would talk to me. I should have taken a good look at myself. I should have gone home to Iowa and gotten my life together. It was yet another long and a long list of should-haves that were starting to pile up. I was born on September 16, 1966 in Mason City, Iowa. To Ed and Marilyn Carell O'Connor, I joined my older brother Jim, who was two and a half at the time. Look at that, huh? Aww. And my parents named me Michael Corey. My dad was a blue-collar guy. After a couple of years in the Army, he worked construction for his older brother Donald. 
for a while and was driving truck for Coca-Cola out of Mason City by the time I was born. When I was one, we moved to Cresco, Iowa. And when I was three, my sister Carrie was adopted to round out our family of five. Hard to believe we were ever that cute, eh? So um, when I was four, we moved to Osage, Iowa, where all three of us graduated from high school and where my parents lived for 40 years until moving to Cedar Falls a few years back when my dad had to go into the nursing home. Dad bought a Standard Oil station in Osage and proceeded to build a business that he'd run for the next 22 years. My mother was a stay-at-home mom and life was simple. I remember playing football and basketball with my buddies, and I can remember uh, discovering racing with my dad. Racing is something that we uh, did together throughout my high school years, and it was a lifelong passion that we shared until dad's passing in just last month in, in April of this year. When I was in the first grade, I had a bad accident, and that has impacted my life ever since. My brother and I were racing bicycles, uh, and our path took us across the service drive of the gas station. I was trailing behind, and I was trying to catch up. And as we flew across the service drive, an attendant came out to wait on a customer, and I ran right into him, flipped over the handlebars, right on the curb, head first. It shook me up. It rattled me. There's no question. But I went home. And uh, later that afternoon, however, I started to throw up and I lost consciousness and they rushed me to Mayo Clinic in Rochester. We're fortunate geographically to have that in our backyard. I had a concussion, a bad one, spent a week in the hospital. And a couple of decades later, after watching me struggle as an adult to make my way in life, my brother came to me and he said he'd like to have me come to Iowa. He had a neurologist friend and he wanted me to sit through some tests. So I did that. And the results were pretty enlightening. It was almost as if the doctor was some kind of late-night television psychic. I'll bet you have trouble with relationships, he said. You have a hard time controlling your temper, don't you? I'll bet you don't do well in crowds. I'm guessing you've changed jobs several times. The list went on and on, and he had me pegged to a T. At the end of the day, there wasn't anything to do. There was no pill to take. There was no surgery to have that would fix the damage that was done. But there was some peace in knowing why I was how I was to a certain degree. Um, and I, uh, after that, after I saw him, I kind of gave myself a bit of a break. As I grew older as a grade schooler, uh, I also grew fatter. There he is. Hang on. Wait for it. How about that? Ah, fashion comes full circle. That's all right, you can laugh. Um, you know, and the other kids picked on me. Being a kid is tough, but being a fat kid is a particularly rough go. It affects your self-esteem in a big way, and anybody who's been on long enough gets worn down. I know I did. Despite all that, I was really an outgoing kid, but the older I got, the meaner it seemed other kids were to me, and I really started to struggle socially. Thankfully, between my 8th and ninth grade years, I grew 6 inches and I lost about 20 pounds. The physical change was pretty significant, but what I realized was that I was who I was and that people saw me um, for who I was. They saw me in a certain way and being fat or skinny didn't change that. Maybe being picked on for so many years made me sensitive. Maybe it was the brain damage. 
But I didn't do well with the typical sarcastic give and take that is how most people communicate. I wasn't good with a quick line, and I'm still not today. But my natural instinct is to be kind and avoid conflict, so I found myself retreating inwardly, and as a result, I felt very alone a lot of the time. I find that I still feel the same way often today. I remember sitting in my room after marching in the Memorial Day parade one spring when I was a sophomore in high school. I don't know what triggered it or why it happened, but I just had this feeling wash over me. I felt empty and sad, and I sat in my room and I cried. And looking back, that was for sure my first bout with depression, something I found out as an adult runs in the family. But I didn't know that at the time I should have said something to somebody. I should have talked to my parents, but I didn't. I was thought of as a good kid, and as a result, most of the teachers in school liked me. One of the teachers I got along particularly well with was our head football coach um, and uh, the high school gym teacher, a guy by the name of Mike Woodley. Many of you might know Mike. He uh Sear Valley guy. He graduated East, uh, was a star at UNI. He coached at Iowa State under McCarney. I forgive him for that because I looked up to him. But uh, he uh, then he took Grandview to the national championship on an NAI level just a few years back. So I really looked up to this guy. One day something happened in gym class. He said to me in front of the other kids, O'Connor, you are a parent's dream. He was a little more descriptive than that. He said a few more words, but you get the point. And looking back, I'm not sure if it was a compliment or not, but that's the way I took it. I had pretty low self-esteem and I was painfully shy around girls. So that should have given me all the confidence in the world, but it didn't for some reason. And I kind of limped through the rest of high school. Um, I did what I needed to do to survive it. I had enough friends to where it wasn't all bad, but I couldn't wait to move on. I think I thought things would be different if only I could get a fresh start somewhere else. I went to Nyack in Mason City my first two years of college, and I had in my head I was going to be some kind of businessman. I thought that even though, according to the Iowa-based skills test, I didn't have much of a shot at that. See, most business people are good at math. They're linear thinkers. Me, not so much. My test results said I should be a writer of some sort or order. You'd think our high school guidance counselor would have grabbed me by the shirt and said, Hey, dummy, maybe you ought to go to Iowa. You might have heard they got a pretty good journalism school down there. But it didn't happen. I should have taken some time to really look at my strengths and weaknesses, but I didn't. I just kind of kept moving forward, and thinking wasn't a very big part of my day. I turned 19 a week after I went to Nyack, which meant I was legal to drink in those days. And that wasn't a really good deal for me because I wasn't very good at drinking. I found my drinking train had no caboose. I used alcohol as a crutch and as a means of making me feel more comfortable socially and as an escape and I have struggled with that throughout my life there was a point where I got into a situation in college where a girl I was seeing decided to see somebody else and I ended up having a drunken altercation with her front door the door was the only thing that got hurt but my dad got wind of it and he came to see me I think he felt guilty because he was a drinker in social settings and he didn't have much of a caboose either And he felt guilty that it was his fault somehow that I was the same way. He told me they uh, they could get me some help if I needed it. There were no interventions in those days, and I said I didn't need the help. But looking back, I did, and I should have taken it. 
But my parents were born in the 40s. We were a small-town Catholic family. We didn't talk about feelings. So I didn't appreciate how much courage it took for Dad to come see me and confront me with that. Um, He had to have had tremendous feelings of guilt and responsibility. I should have told him years ago, before the dementia swallowed him up, that it wasn't his fault, that he and Mom gave me and gave all of us a better example than the one I was following, that my decisions were mine to own and nothing to do with the job he did as a father. But Dad's gone now and it's too late. There was something else I discovered in college that I've struggled with my entire adult life, and that's women. I was right that a change of scenery would do me good in that regard. Nobody knew me, so there was no pre-established notions about who I was. I was a decent-looking guy. Don Johnson, eat your heart out. Those of you that don't get that reference can Google it, you younger people, Crockett and Tubbs, you'll find out what I'm talking about. So I did well with girls and grandmas, as you can see. That should have been a good feeling, but it wasn't. It made me feel wanted. It made me feel successful somehow, feelings I didn't have in high school. Rather than trying to be a good guy and trying to find a meaningful relationship, I was all about what was around the next corner. There wasn't any real joy in it, but it's what I did. It was an empty thing, but I did it, and I did it for a long time. I worked a series of jobs that took, and took out loans to pay for college, but by the time I was going into my senior year at UNI, I transferred there from Nyack, I was broke. So I took a job that summer selling books door-to-door for the Southwestern Company out of Nashville. Anybody had a poor kid knock on your door? Southwestern is a Christian company, and during training in Nashville, they had Amy Grant and her then-husband Gary Chapman come speak to us, come play for us and I started to think a bit during that time about God and faith it was the first time I intentionally thought about God as an adult I remember feeling like I wanted to explore my faith more but I didn't know how to do it I worked in and around uh, Lumberton North Carolina that summer with other college kids from Iowa and I did well the job was to knock on 60 doors a day and uh, whoever answered that door to sell them some kind of encyclopedia Britannica books well, here again, you 20-year-olds, you got no idea what that is even, probably. But trust me, there was a time before the Internet, and us old people, we used encyclopedias to find our information. Um, I struggled at first, but I had some breaks early on, and I found my stride. I had no car, so I rode around on a three-speed girl's bike. That's a true story. Bought off a girl, met her, uh, that I met in Lumberton the first week I was there. I think she took pity on me, and she let me uh, use her mom's old bike. I paid her 25 bucks. You got, there's that picture. Named that bike Bertha. Mom, I don't know if I ever told you that. Grandma Bertha, I have no idea why. But anyway, I rode that bike, and then uh, some people let me use their truck to deliver. Um, you know, I was 1,500 miles away from home. Um, and you know, it was the first time I'd been that far, and I was really determined to succeed, and I did. I finished 33rd out of over 3,000 first-year kids, and I came home with a check for almost $6,000. That was a lot of money in 1987. In the process, I lost about 25 pounds, and I began my senior year at UNI in the best shape mentally and physically in my life. That should have been the springboard. 
But it wasn't. When I got back to you and I, I met a kid that came for money, and since I had a pocket full of money, we partied like we were freshmen, and I remember vividly giving the last $10 I had to the cab driver on the night that, uh, on New Year's Eve, to the cab driver that drove us home. In four months, I'd gained 45 pounds. I was failing miserably in school, and I was at the lowest point in my young life. My mom bailed me out, got me a loan, so I could finish college in the fall of 1989. I went to work for the principal financial group out of Des Moines in their group insurance office in Minneapolis. I got that job because of what I'd done the summer before North Carolina, not because of the 259 that I limped out of you and I with. I hope that you guys that are graduating today will hear this part. Please hear this part. Um, the effort I'd shown and the success I'd had with Southwestern stood in stark contrast to my lack of success as a student. It's embarrassing to me, really, to not have tried harder, not have worked harder than I did when I was in college. I was raised better than that. My parents taught me how to work, not how to be lazy. Not applying myself better in college is one of the great regrets of my life, and I regret it to this day. The group insurance job with the principal was the plum position to have in that company. Group insurance was their number one product line, and they chose only the best and brightest to fill those seats. I had an office looking out over downtown Minneapolis, Pillsbury Center, if you've ever been there. I had a company car, and, my, and I had my own private secretary. Once again, I had the world by the tail, but I let it go. I was an immature 22-year-old, and it was a lot to live up to. I found it hard to regain the confidence I'd had when I sold books. The driver propelled me to that success. I also struggled to fit in with other people in the office. I was a falsely confident kid with poor social skills and a fragile psyche. And after two years, I more or less flunked out. I wasn't fired, but it was clear the manager of the office preferred I leave. I was given the option to figure it out, but I decided to move on. I quit. It was easier. Fast forward to Milwaukee. The time I spent in Milwaukee I refer to now as the lost years. Milwaukee is a good town with good people, even if they're all Packer fans from birth. Skull Vikings. All right? Milwaukee is really just a hazy memory. I spent uh, my time there running from my past in Minneapolis and really just kind of mindlessly trying to stay above water. I met Allison Davis while I was there, and she was in the process of divorcing from her husband, who she'd married uh, or had moved to uh, Milwaukee from, uh, from Atlanta. Um, they were there for his job, and she was like me. She was all alone. We had a volatile relationship from the word go, but it had been 10 years since the last time I was married. And somehow I let her talk me into it. I know that sounds stupid and crazy and that I was an idiot for doing it, but it's nonetheless true. And I can't change it. We moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta shortly after we were married, and while we were in Atlanta, we found out we were pregnant. I think we were both close to ending that marriage, just kind of chalking it up. Before that happened, say it was a mistake and part ways, but once it did, we resolved to make it work. I found a job running a branch office of a Dallas-based company in Cleveland, Ohio, 
And yet again, I was far away from home and family and in a bad personal relationship. But there's one good thing that came out of that marriage, and her name is Emma. There she is. Emma Grace O'Connor was born in Lakewood, Ohio on February 5th, 2003. Allison had a really difficult labor. And when the baby's heart rate dropped, they did an emergency C-section. Emma's birth made me realize that life wasn't all about me. That it was time for me to step up and be a man and provide for my family. Despite a change in my outlook, we lived in Cleveland for what turned out to be less than a year. I tried hard, I really did. But I wasn't ready to be a manager and it showed. With a skinny severance check and no clear direction and a little baby that we had an itching feeling something wasn't quite right with, um, we had to move on. We didn't know what to do. Allison suggested that we move to Iowa and I was really speechless over that. I hadn't wanted to move or get back home for some time, but I really didn't know how to do it. Now moving home seemed like all we could do. So we packed up a U-Haul and moved to Osage and moved in with my parents. Moving back was fine, but moving in with my parents was a gigantic blow. At 35 years old, I felt like a complete and total failure. I found some work with a buddy from high school, and we rented a place a few blocks from my parents. Eventually, I found a job as a sales rep with an advertising agency here in Cedar Falls, and I commuted for eight months wanting to make sure that it was safe, that it was going to work out before we moved again. I determined when I took that job that I had no other choice but to succeed, and I did, the same as when I sold books. In three months, I was a manager. Within six months, I was making more money than I ever ever made in my life. We found a nice home in Waterloo, and we moved. But things were not good in the marriage. And worse yet, Emma was not progressing at a normal rate. It was then that we first heard the word autism from a pediatrician that examined Emma for an earache. I didn't really know what autism was, and I was so swept up in trying to provide that I didn't find out much more about it. But within six months, Allison asked for a divorce. I wanted out of the marriage, no question, but I loved my little girl. I knew Allison would want to move to Atlanta. Rather than fight it, I just kept shuffling my feet. I decided I couldn't keep her in Iowa without family support. So we divorced and Allison and Emma moved to Atlanta. I'll never forget the day that they left. They left out of Waterloo. And uh, Allison, uh, when she got time to go to the to get on the plane, she was holding Emma and Emma was looking over her shoulder at me and she was slow to speech. She wasn't two yet. And she looked at me and she said, I'll buy. I'll buy. She didn't know where she was going or why she was going. And what she didn't know was that she wasn't coming back. And I had no way to know. I didn't know how I was going to continue to be her dad. Shortly after they left, my brother said he wanted to talk to me. He told me that maybe it was best that I take this opportunity to step out of Emma's life. He was coming from a good place, and what he said spoke to my character at the time, but it broke my heart. I couldn't believe he actually said that to me, but in retrospect, I shudder to think 
what would have happened if he didn't. For probably the first time in my life, I actually stopped and did some self-reflection. And when I was done, I determined that I'd do whatever it took to have a relationship with Emma and that she'd know her daddy loved her despite the distance between us. I was very fortunate to have a manager that had my back and I started leaving out Thursday afternoons once a month for a long weekend with Emma. At work, my job was to close deals. It was the sales rep's job to warm them up and it was my job to come in and make the best financial deal I could and close the sale. There were three managers and 20 or so sales reps, and you had to have the sales reps on your side to make that work, and I really struggled with that. I was angry in general back then. I was angry at how things had gone in my life. I was angry that my lot in life was pitching weekend sales to car dealers. But all of our debt and the huge child support payment was on my shoulders. Plus, I had to be able to afford to fly to Atlanta every month, rent a car, and rent a hotel room so that I could have a relationship with my daughter. So I had no choice but to buck up. Somewhere in the midst of all this chaos, God sent me a guardian angel. I've been talking to God a lot since Alice and Emma left, and he must have been listening. Although this angel appeared in the most unlikely form... One of our senior sales reps, the person who had worked only a handful of deals with me ever, ever, and seemed to despise me, took it upon herself to offer some less than friendly advice, advice to help me turn my life around. The angel's name was Julie Schumann, and her advice to me was pretty simple. She said, stop being a jerk. She used a different noun now than jerk but jerk will do for a Sunday morning right at church so and I'm pretty sure by the way that her suggestion came right after she told me that I was patronizing and condescending which I probably was at the time it was quite a slap in the face but something I needed for sure and I went home and thought long and hard about what Julie said and the next morning I came back with a fresh attitude As I treated people better, I naturally started to let the real me come out. The guy that genuinely cares, the guy that wants to to help people, the guy that wants to make an impact in other people's lives. Not surprisingly, things improved in both my professional and my personal life. And eventually, Julie decided I wasn't such a jerk after all. And we started dating, and on December 30th, 2006, 10 years coming up here, it's hard to believe, We were married at Orchard Hill. It was a beautiful wedding. By far the nicest of my three. You can laugh at that. It's all right. Dale Earnhardt was married three times. For you race fans. I still give her grief because she didn't have it videotaped. I finally married for love. Imagine that. And it's a good thing because we've been through a tremendous amount in 10 years, things that I would have walked away from for sure in previous versions of myself. But I haven't done that. Together we've stuck and we've stayed, and I'm so glad for that. I look back and I reflect on my life to this point, and it's clear to me that God was at work in some small ways and some major ways through people He put in my life at critical times. He has never stopped pursuing me, and at every failure... There was a new beginning. First, God used my big brother to confront me with my brokenness and forced me to take a look at myself 
and my priorities. Second, at one of the lowest points in my life, God gave me a manager with a huge heart and allowed me to establish a bond with my little girl. Third, God redirected my life through a surprising, gracious gift, if you call being called the jerk a gracious gift, of my wife. Seriously, I have no idea where I'd be if it weren't for Julie. I really don't, and I hate to think about it. Julie's helped me have a personal relationship with Jesus and to seek and find my own genuine faith life. She's helped me to have the confidence to find opportunities here at Orchard to serve and brought out the servant heart in me that I think I always had but was buried for most of my life. She's helped me to see the good in myself and for the first time in my life really see who I am. I am a good and loving husband. I'm a good father. I'm a good son. I'm a good and trustworthy friend. I've come to realize I've lived in fear for most of my 49 years. Fear of bullying, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of rejection, fear of love. No more. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. The third time it really was a charm. Thank you. I've had the privilege of, you know, getting to know Mike and hearing his story a few times. I was listening to Waverly last week, and I said, I just really struck by the line when he said, I'd been trying to find my way home for a long time, but just didn't know how to do it. I just thought, what a perfect metaphor for how God is at work in our lives all the time, trying to help us to find our way home to Him. He's always at work doing that work, and He wants to show us how to do that. And you've had quite a journey in that. And um, uh, one of the things that's helped you is this class, the journey that you took that helps you write that. We want you to know that that comes around every fall, so be watching that in the fall. If you're somebody who just would like to see how God's been at work in your life, maybe get a better idea how He wants to work, that's a great way to do that. So I'm going to pray for Mike, and then we'll continue to worship. Hey, God, I just thank you so much for my good friend Mike, and I thank you for his courage to stand up here and bear his soul and share his life with us. And, uh, Lord, I know I find it personally encouraging just to see how you are relentlessly in pursuit of us with your love and your grace. And uh, so I thank you that, um, that we get to see that picture of you, uh, whether it's through a, a sharp word or a harsh word from a brother who loves us, uh, whether it's a mom who is gracious enough to bail us out when we don't deserve it, uh, whether it's through a, a wife or the kindness and mercy you show uh, throughout our lives with bringing blessing into our lives, you are always at work to love us. We thank you for that. pray that we could uh, meditate and reflect on that now as we turn our hearts to give you worship and praise. In your name we pray. Amen.